0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from Leanpub and in this Leanpub podcast I'll be interviewing Eric Dietrich. Eric is a programmer, consultant and blogger and the founder of uh, Diet Tech LLC where you can read his posts at uh, diettech.com. Eric is the author of the Leanpub book Developer Hegemony: The Future of Labor. His book is focused on the history and ubiquity of our incumbent management and corporate culture and how it is based on outdated models that are not appropriate for the kind of work done In software development and and it's also ultimately uh what a better future might look like Um, in this interview we're going to talk about eric's professional interests uh, his background um, his book and at the very end we'll talk a little bit about his experience with um, self-publishing on leanpub so thank you eric for being on the leanpub podcast
1: oh sure thanks for having me
0: uh did i pronounce dead tech correctly
1: it's uh the jury's out on that one, I suppose. It's the the um the way I say it is dead tech, but it was originally named after the Greek figure Daedalus, which some people pronounce Daedalus. So
0: Okay, got it's it. It's kind of uh,
1: either way, I suppose.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, cool name. Um uh, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their um origin story, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in in programming and the course of your career to this point, which is obviously very relevant to the subject of your book in the end.
1: Sure. Um, As a kid, I had some exposure, I guess, to uh, maybe not classic programming, but I remember programming my um, uh, graphing calculator in high school. And as a very little kid, um, this IBM PC junior that I used to spend time uh, hacking games with my dad on. so that got me interested in technology, and I always had kind of an interest in technology. Um, my high school didn't have computer science, but uh, going into a computer science degree appealed to me at that age. So I applied to computer science program and went to school for that, and that was kind of what got me started. Went through the, sort of the standard track, and then um, after school, uh, had a programming career, and I've been in or around uh, that career path ever since.
0: Oh, okay. Um, and uh, you sort of made a transition, ultimately, from um, working, yeah, working from uh, corporations to um, uh, being a consultant, largely now. Uh, mm-hmm. And you were you were actually a CIO at one point. Yes. And yeah, can you talk a little bit about why why you decided to make that change? I know it's a big big story. <laughs>
1: um, so my career followed really the. Standard software development track, I guess, programmer, senior programmer. And then I started having leadership responsibilities, um, team lead, tech lead, architect, those sorts of roles. Um, and then eventually into management and working as a CIO. Um, I changed jobs a few times and kind of grabbed opportunities when they came. Um, and I enjoyed different aspects uh, of all of that. And I really, in particular, like the technology. But I found myself, um, I guess, and, and I talk a lot about this in the book, but I describe it as kind of continuously frustrated and restless in every role. And I think I followed a lot of the software developer career arc, not necessarily because, I mean, it felt like ambition to me at the time. I wanted to get ahead. I wanted to be the boss. But in retrospect, I think a lot of it was that I didn't want to be subject to things that I thought of as silly or ill-advised or even sometimes unethical um, that would come down from uh, people above me. And I always thought if I get into more of a leadership role, I'll call more of the shots. I won't be exposed to this, but found that even um, as the CIO, there are still, you know, there's an ownership interest, there's a CEO, you know, there's always stuff going on above you. So um, eventually I thought that I would try my hand at being in business for myself and, It's, you know, you hear a lot of people say that on your own, you don't, you don't avoid having a boss, your boss just becomes your clients. And while that's true, you have a bunch of them. um, So you're sort of spreading out the the risk of being exposed to things you don't like any given client that presents a problem to me, I can walk away without it being catastrophic. Um, So that's really kind of where the decision, uh, I think, originated from in terms of my own um, personal take on the matter.
0: Yeah, and you talk you talk in the book about how um there was this was actually a sort of big change in your thinking of that that when you were growing up you had a kind of reverence might not be the right word but you had positive associations with corporations and working for them and advancing within them.
1: Mhm. Yeah, I definitely did it. Um I was an overachiever in in school. In high school I did well. And so I think I sort of uh, um Growing up and then early on in my corporate career, I viewed it as an extension of that. You know, I wanted to get good grades, so to speak, Um, getting good marks at my performance review, um, getting promotions, that kind of thing felt like that same sort of achievement paradigm. Um, But I kind of went on to perceive that that was ultimately hollow. And then in retrospect, looking back on it, it strikes me as sort of also a silly way for adult knowledge workers to interact with one another. Um, So that that attitude towards the, I guess the corporation is the steward of my career very much changed. I realized that was um, hollow, I guess, for lack of a a better way to put it.
0: Yeah, you've got, there's a certain, there are quite a few um, uh, uh, reflections of that in your book, including the concept of um, carnival cash.
1: Um,
0: (laughs) And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what you mean by carnival cash and and, um, uh, why uh, people might be better off saying no to it.
1: I think I first, um, cause I've been writing on my blog for a lot of years from, you know, back in the days when I, I was working as a programmer, um, and I think I first kind of came up with that term when answering reader questions about, you know, do I want to uh, achieve seniority with a company? Is that a good thing to do? Or should I be moving around um, job hopping, as it were? And I remember in contemplating that, I started to think about the things that, that you start to value at a company um, that don't actually have a whole lot of market worth. So, for instance, a good example of that might be a You know, a company parking space or having your choice of the best cubicle to sit in something that from the outside you view is, you know, borderline worthless. Like if, if you were to look at some company you weren't familiar with and all the people there were talking about how they got to sit in this certain cubicle, if, you know, they did all the right things, you would look at that and sort of feel bemusement and wonder why they were chasing that. Uh, but if you were there at that company competing for that thing, you would start to disproportionately value that. Um, hey, I was the one, you know, it's part of the, the culture. And so the idea of carnival cash is is this metaphor I created to say, it's like when you go to a carnival and I, in the U S anyway, this is, um, sort of ubiquitous. Uh, I don't know if it is in other countries or not, but the, um, the carnivals you go and, and you go and, um, do the games and the rides and stuff. And instead of just paying in cash, you, you have to get these tickets. Um, so there's this like a uh, currency that's only worth anything at the actual carnival. And it's really kind of designed, <laughs> Uh, cynically speaking, I think they sell the tickets in really strange numbers. So you, you, you kind of have to buy an odd number of tickets and you wind up sort of stuck with these things at the end. But the point is it's this insular currency that once you leave the carnival, it's completely useless. And so there's a lot of that that's built up in, in the corporate cultures, um, in the corporate world, things that you value there and that the company will actually reward you with that don't have any monetary value, maybe in lieu of promotions. So we're not going to give you a 5% cost of living adjustment this year, but instead, um, you you can, you know, have this particular cubicle.
0: Yeah, it's funny. That reminds me of, um, I used to work for a, a big company. Um, and, uh, it was sort of famously, um, there was only one office in the whole company and that was for the CEO and everyone else, you know, just set in open plan. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, you know, working on the 30th floor of a building, um, uh, the window seat is the best. And so actually it just started, you know, the, the ranking that happens in all human environments to started to happen by proximity to the window um, uh, uh, was an, an indication of uh, seniority or favor um, and, you know, being furthest from the door or the copy machine or things like that. Um, and that, um, that became a way of rewarding or punishing people was moving the seats around. Um, Sure. uh, and, and do you, 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 I think, I think you say in your book that you not necessarily advocate, but you suggest that people might want to consider saying no. And are you saying, for example, um, you know, to be direct about it, are you saying that if someone offers you the plaque for employee of the month, you should say, no, I don't value that or give me something else.
1: (laughs) So in part four of my, um, of the book, I I segment it um, where I talk about sort of the corporate condition um, in part two after an intro. And then in part three, I go through the history of the corporation. And then part four, I talk about how to um, succeed in the corporate world such as it is. And part four is sort of an interesting thing because I'm not actually – advocating that people do that per se. It's kind of a buyer beware. Like if you do these things, you can get ahead in the corporation. I'm not saying whether you should do that or not. Part five is really where I go into more of the vision I see for the future of knowledge workers. Um, So I'm mentioning all that in the context to say that in part four, I advocate if you want to get ahead, if you want to work your way up into the C-suite. You don't want to become known for accepting carnival cash in lieu of actual compensation. That's not really a a politically savvy play. So what I would advocate, if that is your goal, isn't so much to turn it down outright, but to avoid situations where you're presented with that sort of thing. Um, Because, you know, getting, you know, in your um, experience there, sitting close to the window is an acknowledgement that you're playing and valuing that game. When what you really want to be doing is, you know, like the CEO, he's not participating in that. So you want to find ways to position yourself like the people not participating in those games.
0: That's really interesting. And I'm I'm looking forward to talking uh, about your thoughts on the future. Um, uh, But one of the most one of the things the parts of your book that I like the most was your uh, narrative arc about the history of the corporation. Um, And I know it stretches back a couple thousand years. And you know, this podcast isn't going to last for a couple thousand hours. But if you could, (laughs) um, if you could uh, maybe give us a, a broad picture of that history of the corporation so we can talk about your thoughts about the present and the future.
1: Sure. Um, In doing research, you know, I I wanted to, and actually at the time of starting to write the book, I'd already started to poke into the history of it a little bit, but um, I sort of let the research I was doing guide that part, which I guess you would expect, but um, I was surprised by how much I found out. And I talked about the history of the corporations sort of almost as a snowball rolling downhill and picking up more and more mass where um, I wanted to paint kind of here's where we are today and here's at each point in history where this got acquired. So I spent some chapters in there talking about how corporations have existed in a form that we might recognize since the 2000s BC in certain cultures um, and that they picked up things like Founder Legacy was one of the earliest ones. So why would you why would you incorporate or why would you do something other than just kind of, you know, trading wagon wheels or whatever you were doing? Um, you would, you would create something like that, maybe to pass on to your children. And and so you'd want to be remembered. So that was an early acquisition of the corporate culture. And then I um, talked through the middle ages and through the industrial revolution um, about how at different points in history, they became more and more recognizable um, that they started to, go beyond just simple mechanisms for trade and they started to influence their surroundings and the surrounding actual um, politics of the towns and countries that they were in um, how they started to be about um, things that, you know, went beyond simple trade um, and span uh, large geographical considerations and then uh, where the employer employee relationship came from. So it was really a very um, broad History and I, I tried to be comprehensive without getting too bogged down and, and spending. You know, I didn't want to turn it into a history book per se, but I thought there was a lot of important information there to capture, you know, throughout the centuries how we've gotten to this point.
0: Yeah, you make a really interesting point about how, um, you know, we take it for granted nowadays that the standard model of a life it involves being an employee. Uh, and that uh, if one is not an employee in one's life, that's somehow a deviation from, from a standard. Um, And that this idea that the ubiquity of the uh, concept of uh, being an employee as the norm was partially developed as a result of the Second World War, when the United States needed to have this uh, huge manufacturing effort go on.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) There is um, one of the more interesting things I found was that some of the the things that we take for granted as part of the corporate condition, were both very arbitrary and have not really been looked at overly critically. Like the job interview is a big one. Um, the ubiquity of, um, the employee is, uh, Uh, as a sort of condition of standard society is not something that was always true. I forget when exactly peak employment occurred, um, but it's pretty recently. There were times throughout history where being an employee was not at all common, um, especially predating the Industrial Revolution. But there was an interesting thing that happened uh, around the time of World War II for the U.S., which is one of the things, and this is probably not common in other countries as far as I know, but in the U.S., it's very standard for your health insurance to be tied up um, through your employer. So, if one of the biggest deterrents to a lot of people I know going off on their own is, oh, I'll lose my health insurance that my company provides for me. Um, that actually was kind of a random hack to get around some legislation. They froze wages during World War II, as part of the um, in response to demand and um, uh, for the manufacturing and, and all the effort that was going on during the war and um to get around that to sweeten the pot when they were hiring some companies started to toss in random perks one of which was employer provided health insurance and that just kind of froze in place and it's a great example of how ingrained in our lives, you know, being an employee has become that if you want to look at going off on your own, there's all these things. And, you know, having dealt with it, I can speak to this a lot. It's, it's a hassle to take care of your own insurance, your own retirement savings, things like this. Um, that wasn't always the case. It's just what's evolved.
0: Yeah. That reminds me of, I once met a, 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 at a Canadian university, a professor who just moved from the States um, to teach there. Um, and she remarked that there was this Lack of an edge to her Canadian students that uh, was definitely there, and she'd taken it for granted in her American students. And she actually made that connection uh, between that need uh, to pay for healthcare um, and that edge that she saw the sort huh. of you know the competitiveness that she saw in her American students. That there is this one of these things you do have to worry about as an ongoing concern in the United States that you don't in Canada is being able to pay. And that often means having a job. And so the incentives to um, perform in a way that pleases your superiors have this kind of existential aspect to them <laughs> in that kind of environment. Um, sure. Uh, you talk about uh, something I hadn't heard about before, uh, the Gervais principle, um, which is both funny and, and scary. Um, And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about that.
1: Sure. That comes from a blog um, called Ribbon Farm. uh, And I read about that years ago and incorporated it into my own thinking. It was very um, informative and formative, I guess, at the same time for me uh, in regarding the way I thought about uh, office politics in the corporation and. What um, it's named after – it's a theory of management based on the sitcom The Office. And it does this fascinating thing where it takes this relatively lighthearted sitcom and lays out this um, kind of foundation theory of um, how managers interact. And what it says is it, it builds, if you will, on the Dilbert principle, which is um, – Dilbert says that basically you you promote people – that are incompetent into management so that they can't do any damage. Um, and the guy who writes all this, he uses the office as an example and he says, no, you don't, you know, executives are too smart for that. They're not going to promote incompetent people into positions, um, just to keep them from doing damage at the line level. They promote people into positions as part of, you know, strate- strategic, politics. They'll promote people, you know, to take falls, if you will. Um, And it is, especially as I'm saying it here, if if you're listening to this, this sounds like phenomenally cynical. It is, um, but it's also very persuasive if you go and actually read through it. And it talks about how, for instance, um, uh, to bring it uh, to somewhere a little more tangible, if you're an executive and the organization has a program that you're overseeing and you have sort of jockeyed for, let's say, um, doing it a different way, for instance, but you're overruled and um, you see that you're on a failure course, what you might see someone do is promote a lower level manager into a mid-level manager role to assume responsibility for this program that you know will probably fail. And then this is essentially a sacrificial lamb. And so what the Gervais principle is saying is that that is actually the way that um, you see a lot of promotions happen in the corporate world. And what it does is it takes this, you know, pyramid shape of the corporation and it divides it into three parts. At the top, you have um, what he calls sociopaths. In the middle, you have clueless. And at the bottom, you have um, losers. And those are very loaded terms, but the Gervais principle talks about how middle management – is this sort of clueless layer? For that reason, they get promoted for reasons that they don't fully understand, and then they assume it was because they uh, played the game well.
0: You also have this interest, invoke this interesting concept of the people in the middle being positioned there as buffers, mm-hmm. um, and I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about that.
1: Sure, th- that's another thing I draw from the Gervais principle, and I expand on a bit. And actually, in my own book, I give these folks different terms instead of um, losers clueless and sociopaths, I call them pragmatists, idealists and opportunists, uh, because uh, my book is a little bit less cynical in in where I think that um, uh, where we are and where we should go. Uh, I I, want to kind of appeal to people (laughs) instead of alienating them. The idea of the buffer is that um, at the top, you have this ownership culture. And at the bottom, the people that I call pragmatists are uh, members of the wage culture. And so the corporation the pyramid shaped corporation is essentially designed um you know fairly transparently on the idea that people that take risk the opportunists at the top uh capitalize on a whole ton of surplus value generated by the people at the bottom so i'm going to take a bunch of risk i'm going to start a corporation i'm going to pay you you know 25 dollars an hour and no matter how many billions of dollars i might make that's all you're ever going to get And so the idea of this middle layer as a buffer is that if you just had the bottom and top layer, you'd have a lot of resentment. So you get this middle layer full of true believers in the corporate culture that are going to stay and work long hours, uh, even though it's not really economically in their best interest to do so. They'll stay there, work these really long hours, uh, get these nominal promotions, but they become these cheerleaders, these idealists or clueless in, in the middle. And they serve as a buffer where the people at the bottom that might resent the company, it's kind of hard to resent somebody that's there, you know, working 60 hours alongside them and talking about how great the company is. You might not love that, but it's hard to view them as, you know, uh, bloodthirsty opportunists.
0: It's interesting that um, – It reminded me when I read about it um, of something I heard that was kind of saying something different about uh, the concept of a buffer or just very indirectly. It was um, an interview by Ezra Klein of J.D. Vance, um, whom you may have heard of. He's the author of a book that has become popular in the last uh, year or so called or a year or two maybe now called Hillbilly Elegy. Um, and <laughs> I think I have heard that. Yeah. And so um, uh, what happened was with, with the rise of, of Trumpian populism, um, there became this interest particularly on what I guess Trumpian populists themselves would call the liberal elite in the media to think, well, who are these people and what are they like? Um, and so this guy had written this book about what it had been like for him to grow up amongst, um, you know, what, what is now colloquially referred to as the kind of white working class or, or even kind of below that, um, mm-hmm. people really struggling, um, at every day with all kinds of problems. Um, and, uh. Ezra Klein asked him, so one of the things that has surprised, you know, people like me about what's happened with Trump is that, you know, he's appointed this cabinet that's full of billionaires. Uh, He he is himself, you know, purported to be a billionaire. Um, Why don't the people at the bottom resent people like that? Um, And he said, um, what you need to want something along the lines of what you need to understand is that they don't care about the CEO living in the gated community 50 miles away. They care about the guy one or two levels above them that they interact with all the time who has the power to order them around and, and fire them. <laughs> um, so I, I thought, I mean, it was, an, it was an interesting, like a, a sort of opposite concept of the buffer uh, from the one <laughs> you're describing, which is that um, uh, you put them in between you and the, lower, the people be- at the bottom so that they can resent the person immediately above them uh, rather than the person at the top so that they can take the heat.
1: Yeah, and there is um, I, there are very complex dynamics, I think, that, that exist in there. But certainly I, I see that as being a part of it, you know, taking the heat. For instance, I've seen it a lot of organizations, especially, you know, um, places I worked, but then uh, spending the last several years as a consultant, I see a lot of companies. Um, and one of the best examples, I think, of maybe idealism in its purest form is if you look at a group of people that are all line-level employees and you give them a certain amount of latitude, I guess, to claim and stake out leadership-ish territories, you know, to um, it would be perceived as going the extra mile to get ahead. One of the things people will really gravitate towards is to try to insinuate them – in a communication, insinuate themselves in a communication bottleneck kind of role. So, let's say that I were a member of a five-person software development team, and there were no um, formal uh, higher. There was no formal hierarchy among us. What I might try to do is get in on all the meetings with management and create a situation where management told me something, and I would go and tell the rest of the team that something. So, I become that point of communication because that sort of simulates. Uh, leadership, I guess, in the organization. But if that actually gets formalized, if I'm an opportunist at the top, well, if, if if an opportunist, uh, sorry, I'm getting, uh, giving myself two different roles in this narrative. Um, I'm still the leader, like say the opportunist at the top is someone else. And he looks at this and thinks, well, that's great. I was going to have to tell all these people that I'm going to have them come in and work on the weekend, but I'll just, I'll have this idealist do it instead. um, so, you, you know, there are these interesting dynamics that emerge um, in in which that buffer, you know, it's really a form of the carnival cache, I might say, the, you know, ability to control the message, if you will.
0: Uh, one of the really interesting things about uh, the book and this discussion is how much as this has already come up, but how much we there are things we take for granted, like the kind of structures that are implicit in the story that you describe. Um, and in the book, you talk about how a shift happened at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, guided by someone named um, Frederick Taylor, um, mm-hmm. who pro- proposed the idea of an organization consisting of owners, uh, non-owning but educated managers, and and you say beast-like laborers. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting because you make the point that he's associated with um, the idea of it being in the corporation's interest to improve worker conditions. But that didn't mean that he. it was because he had a great love for workers.
1: Sure. Yeah, so um, I actually talk about this a lot, both in the book and in general. Frederick Taylor is an interesting guy, and I have a very nuanced take on him. But in oh, the late 1890s, early 1900s, he had this principle of scientific management. And what it was, it was actually pretty fascinating. It was applying the scientific method to manufacturing, and nobody had really thought to do this before. During the Industrial Revolution, you had the owners and then you had the workers and maybe there were foremen. Um, And what the foreman would do by way of, quote, management is make sure everybody got to the factory on time and didn't leave early and didn't gold brick while they were there, you know, cracking the whip, so to speak. And Taylor came along and and started to run experiments and uh, try to reason about how to get the most out of the workers. And what he came to realize was that um, doing things like giving them breaks or having them work shorter hours in certain contexts, or or even things like improving the lighting where they were changing, how they held their shovels as they were digging all of these, um, uh, when he ran experiments would improve their productivity. And so he looked at this in a very dispassionate sense and said, giving people rest breaks actually works, you know, it's better. And so that seems humanitarian, but his goal was really in the end, just, um, effectiveness and what he advocated was that you had these you know beast like and he actually literally described the people that would work on the line this way as like beast like um you have these beast like people and you need this layer of other people that figure out how to kind of manipulate them into giving the best performance and it was the precursor uh to what we think of as industrial engineering <clears throat> and I think a lot of the problems that that we have in the modern knowledge work economy is that we still, we approach knowledge workers as line level people and that there needs to be this layer above them that figures out, you know, if they're programmers or engineers or whatever, figures out how to get these, you know, laboring engineer, software developer beasts to actually produce something useful.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, uh, one of the things um, that's really interesting about what you describe about what Taylor did was that he proposed that... The very qualities that made someone capable of productively doing the labor uh, prevented them from being able to understand management, uh, mm-hmm. what it meant to manage uh, a business. And so this created, and, and the managers themselves did not possess the characteristics required to be a good laborer. And so you get this distinction between people who do work and then people who have a kind of abstract Ability to that can uh, to manage that can be applied to any kind of work.
1: Yep, absolutely. And you know that uh, I think anybody listening <laughs> would recognize that this sort of caste system in the workplace obviously still exists to this day. That uh, being a manager comes with more status, more money, more everything than being a line level worker in whatever line of work that you're in.
0: One uh, observation I've made uh, watching certain types of corporate cultures is um, the, and and going to the question of why in particular is software development knowledge work still often treated as grunt labor, um, is the, uh, the negativity that comes from being associated with typing. <laughs> I, I know it sounds like a very particular observation, but when you see Ambitious executive types, they will rarely permit themselves to be seen typing, um, which is one of the reasons they love blackberries and smartphones so much Um, (laughs) and tablets even I've 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 seen I've heard this stated explicitly and I think one of the there's actually an interesting historical gender component to it where um, people associated typing with women's work.
1: (laughs) Um,
0: And so there was something, you know, not only was typing seen as, you know, doing the work, something, if you're an aspiring executive, you should never be seen to be doing because for these deep reasons, they think that if you're even capable of doing that, it means you can't, you can't do the kind of work you're aiming to do. Um, but also there was an element of sexism in it. And that, that sort of, you know, ironically, given the, the, the um, gender imbalance in software development, there's nonetheless this association of that kind of work with um, something that's not very robust.
1: That's that's really interesting. I've actually never heard that, but it very much lines up with uh, everything that I've read. You know, I could certainly see it. And as I think about it, yeah, it you wouldn't really picture somebody in the C-suite as sitting down to a typewriter. And, you know, I, I could even see people, especially maybe of the baby boomer generation, taking pride in hunting and pecking on the occasion that they needed to type.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. Um, it's a version of, uh, the way, um, I call it the myth of incompatible talents. Um, so you can not only get someone who thinks that, um, someone who's good at art must be bad at math, but you get the perversion of it, which is the person who thinks that because they're bad at math, they're an artist, (laughs) um, that it's somehow proof that they possess the, the opposite quality. Um, You know,
1: that's interesting because I, um, I don't talk about this all at the, in at all in the book, but in general, it's something I've blogged about that I've thought of, um, that you mentioned it that way. I've thought of, if you take like a role playing game where you get to, you know, a certain amount of points that you get to allocate to people's attributes or what have you, that there's this sort of. In the software industry at times, it seems almost like the sandbagging of your own social skills because that creates the illusion, like if I'm really bad at interacting with people socially, I must be really good at programming. And so I, I've, I think I've seen instances where people almost embrace social awkwardness as like some kind of proof that they must be good at, um, you know, extremely, I guess it's left brained, I can't keep them straight, but the, the, the one that's associated with math. So if I'm really bad at social, I must be good at math.
0: Yeah, I mean, we could go on about this forever, but another example might be that, you know, um, uh, and this is something I find very interesting to think about is, and this is particularly true in American culture, is the association of the skills and qualities required to be good at organized professional sports with the skills and qualities required to succeed in business. Hmm. Um, And so basically, you know, people make quite... Uh, uh, and it, they, they telegraph that they're very good at sports in order to telegraph that they're, you know, very good at business or something like that. <laughs> and, then, and then you want to keep your people's perceptions of your identity focused on that rather than on things that, you know, are associated with uh, not being good at business, for example. Um, uh, one thing you talk about uh, to get specific is the delivery trap. Um, and, and I think this is related partly to what you're saying about the knowledge worker being treated as a grunt. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you can explain a little bit about what the delivery trap is.
1: So in part four of the book, where, where I'm kind of explaining, if you, if you want to work your way into the C-suite of a pyramid shaped corporation, one of the things, and this is going to be depressing if you make your living as a software developer, but one of the things you really want to stop doing is, uh, writing software that is generally organizationally speaking a low status uh, endeavor and it you know it, there's some overtones there in what we're talking about about you know typing um certainly feeds into this but um one of the things that happens is that when you get above when you get into frederick taylor's management layer of the organization that's going to be populated by the people i describe as both idealists and opportunists that are working their way up to the top um when you get in there you don't have direct output any longer. So if you're a software developer and um, you know, I'm not advocating in any way that software developers be measured this way, but you could measure a software developer by output, you know, certain amount of lines of code, certain amount of features delivered. When you get into management, you can only be measured indirectly. Your value to the organization becomes extremely hard to ascertain. And even if you, um, are presiding over a group where something goes badly wrong, you have narrative at your disposal. Oh yes, we did badly, but, um, I didn't hire these people and they failed. I'm not saying that that's a property of a good leader by any stretch, but that's a, that's a card that you have at your display, uh, disposal. You're able to control, um, your own ascension through the company via narrative. And that actually kind of feeds to, into what we were talking about earlier in terms of, um, why a person in a management role might overpromote somebody you know to take a fall to control the narrative, um, so that's a bit of a digression, but the reason I mention it in the context of the delivery trap is that if you want to ascend in the organization, you need to you need to get out of situations where your input and output is, is very easy to measure and get into situations where you have narrative control. So the first thing you need to do is stop getting measured by very concrete and easily manipulated things. Um, and that's what I call the delivery trap. So when I talk about how to escape that, if if you really want to move up in the organization, you start to do things like, uh, angle your way into project management instead of writing code, um, you know, find a way that you're evaluating and supervising and doing stuff like that and try to get more and more of your responsibility to be doing stuff like that. You want to look more like a manager and less like a worker. Um it, you know, I just wince as I'm saying all this because this is what I mean. My advice about in part four, it's not exactly advice. I don't like that state of affairs, but it's undeniably effective for getting ahead um if you wanna work your way into the C suite.
0: Yeah, I understand. It's a it's actually a, a distinction that I think it's sometimes hard to get across. But an explanation is not necessarily the same thing as an endorsement. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, on the subject of measurement, and, and this came up earlier. Um, you talk in the book about the origin of the modern job interview, <laughs> and it's hilarious um, what you say. And, and you know, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and a little bit about Google's efforts um, to actually measure the result of sort of intake strategies.
1: Sure. Um, so the, the job interview is a topic that's long. I have a long and sort of uncomfortable history with it. I mean, I've always thought of it as sort of a silly thing, um, in a lot of ways, you know, you come in and people ask you these strange questions. Um, but I also have never really historically known what a great alternative is to it. Um, over the years I've explored maybe some of that, but, um, when i was writing this book when i was really trying to figure out what's a good um future for knowledge workers uh, one of the obvious things to consider is you know how do we find and hire people how do we interact with one another so um in order to approach that i sat down and i started to do some research in earnest and okay well how do we get started doing this job interview thing in the first place where did it come from and and what has the evolution been over the years and what i found is really Striking and and depressing, <laughs> and it was basically that there was really no such thing as the job interview until I think it was the nineteen twenties. Early, I'd have to go back and look specifically. I don't remember the exact year, but what happened was basically this didn't exist, and an aging Thomas Edison decided that he was tired of people being hired into his company that didn't have a knowledge of trivia that he could share, so. He rolled out this thing where a questionnaire was administered to all inbound applicants where they were basically given a trivia test and um, that became standard procedure. And then uh, as management fads are wont to do, everybody saw that Edison was doing it and they started adopting it. Um, so there was this, you know, kind of freeform trivia um, set of questions administered to applicants. And then that's really basically it. That's the entire history of the job interview it started as that, and it hasn't evolved. (laughs) And so that, that was pretty amazing to me. I mean, that's, it's not to say that there aren't, you know, different questions that get asked or whatever, but it was adopted. It didn't particularly work. In fact, his original, uh, screening process would have eliminated Albert Einstein. Um, and even though it was never really demonstrated to be effective, uh, it was just adopted. And then it was sort of, um, solidified into the corporate world and never really revisited and it's what we do to this day except for um you'd asked about google as best i can tell they're one of the only organizations that's actually taken a critical look at this and um a lot of the reading i did was um from things written by their now former head of hr laszlo bach and he had talked about discovering that um The traditional way of doing interviews, the sort of undirected random Q&A, is basically no more effective than asking people for references. And Google has done interesting things. Like at one time, they sent a bunch of candidates through their process, um, half of which made it and were hired, and the other half of which they decided to pass on. But then, I guess because they're big enough and they can afford to do this, they just hired those people they had passed on anyway. And they monitored the performance of both groups through the company and found that there was basically no difference so this interview process between these two buckets of candidates had absolutely no bearing on their um, on their future performance in the job. It was essentially a useless activity um, so I spent a good bit of time in the book kind of considering the question of interviews and you know how do we how do we get to this sort of silly position and and what does it mean um, And that's, I guess, something I talk about and think about a lot in general, too.
0: Um, You have a great line in your book, just to segue. um, uh, When it comes to, you know, the segue would be, I guess, the evaluation of how much people are really doing, how much work they're really doing. And um, you have a great line where you talk about um, going remote, how going remote exposes just how little work is involved in the average corporate workday. (laughs) <laughs> um, and then you talk about the cult of hours, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Uh, and this is something I experienced when, when you go to work, if, if you work in a corporate office, I think a certain kind of Protestant work ethic that happens where you go to work and you don't really enjoy it. Ergo, anything you're doing, there must be work, whether you're at your desk, um, writing software, or, you know, you're an outlook manager, in email, or you're in the cafeteria chatting, all of that is construed as work, because you are physically in that space. And one thing that I encountered when I started to do more consulting and do a lot more uh, remote sort of activities was this jarring ability, if you were at home without distractions, to accomplish what you would have otherwise spent 8 hours doing and maybe an hour or two I um, kind of experience that firsthand um, <clears throat> and is the cult of hours the idea that um, that the best way for us to measure people's contributions to an organization or by measuring how much time they spend physically present is actually sort of a terrible way to measure value, but it's kind of the only one, especially in large corporations that we really have at our disposal. Because if you think about it, what I was talking about with this layer of middle management where they are evaluated on the basis of narrative, if you take, you know, a corporation with 5,000 people and pick out some random middle manager, how do you possibly evaluate what that person's bottom line contribution is to the organization? Uh, it's borderline impossible. Um, And so we grab this proxy, like, how much are you present? How into the company are you? You know, we we start measuring things like that instead as a way to evaluate their performance um, because we don't really know how to measure their bottom line contributions.
0: Yeah, there's a really interesting element of that, which is also, um, and you talk about the sort of shock one experiences oneself, but the idea of self-perception around how hardworking one perceives oneself to be. And it reminded me of... um, uh, a friend of mine, who has he commutes into um, Manhattan every day, but he has to his job starts at like four a.m. Um, and so he drives in from Long Island, and it takes you know I don't know forty five minutes in the morning. Um, but when his job ends at like you know two in the afternoon or something like that, um, it takes like four hours for him to drive home. <laughs> um, and I can imagine at the end of the day, he's totally exhausted and feels like he feels like he worked like a 16 hour day. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and the, it did take up that much time and it was all work related, but how much of it actually was, was directly um, concerning the job that he's paid to do. It was like half. Sure. Um, And, and it is a really interesting thing to think about when you, when you start to put together like how much unpleasantness, is a so is sort of a substitute for work.
1: Yep. Like I have endured all this stuff. So, (laughs) you know, I, I didn't enjoy it. I must've been working. And it's not that I, I wouldn't say that there's really anybody that sits down and thinks that, But it's a kind of a question of how you feel. You come home exhausted at the end of the day. And even if maybe you didn't, you know, write a bunch of code or make a bunch of sales calls or or whatever it may be, you know, you still showed up, maybe a little under the weather, and you were tired and people were hassling you. So you feel like you worked hard. And it gets interesting when you when you go and work remote or when you do things that um you know, I've done as a consultant, like experiment with different billing models, where you start to accomplish the same thing you would have accomplished and realize how much maybe less time it takes you because you're not distracted, or maybe it's um Well, you know, some variant of of, uh, being exposed to the difference. You don't you're remarking, wow, you know, I'm I'm finished with this by nine in the morning because I didn't have my usual conversation um, near the coffee machine with people where you just see that striking difference.
0: Yeah, I remember my first um, experience in an office job and just watching the people around me and realizing that there were entire sections that kind of, you know, showed up 20 as late as late as they could get away with say 20 minutes late um then chatted and got the coffee and went through that routine um <laughs> then then uh you know checked email and by that time it's lunch and then you you do that for as long as you can get away with and then you come back and have a little chat and then get a coffee and then maybe <laughs> do an hour or two of work in the afternoon and then it's time to go home um, yeah.
1: And if um someone throws some kind of pointless status meeting on your calendar, that's, for instance, a, a great excuse. You know, you get back to your desk from getting coffee and there's only 20 minutes till the status meeting. So what are you really going to do Um, between now and then? So you just hop on Facebook or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's. uh and, and then but at the end of the day, because you've gone through the routine, perhaps, of, you know, getting up, getting getting dressed, you know, going to work as it were, sort of punching the clock, getting through that commute. And all the unpleasantness that often involves, which is also something I think people tend to discount in their own lives. Um, and then, yeah, going through so many motions, um, you get back at the end of the day and you feel like you've worked hard. And it has been a hard day, but uh, not necessarily all that much got done. Um, yeah, and you might
1: look at, um, you, you might look back and think, you know, if, if you loafed a bit, like, eh, I stood around um, the coffee machine a little too long or yeah, I probably shouldn't have spent some time on Facebook. This wasn't my most productive day, but you don't tend as an employee generally to look back and try to quantify, you know, how much was I actually contributing to the company and how much of this was waste. It's just sort of a subjective take that you have and being at home and, you know, actually billing by the hour, being a free agent, you are confronted with that almost right away.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, moving on actually to the, so the I got to the final page of your book and it's the beginning of a new part that does not exist yet. It's called, um, it said part five, where we go from here. Um, (laughs) and, uh, I was really interested to hear, uh, your thoughts on that.
1: So I've actually written part five. It's done. Um, I've interviewed some people for it and before I publish it to the folks that have bought the book, I want to get their take Um, so I have, um, sort of talked in there a lot and I'm trying to think of, uh, how I might summarize part five, but I talk about the idea of a software developer opportunist and I start to lay out, um, what I think might be some principles of how software developers work. So, um, I'm trying to think of the most salient points that I could cover relatively briefly. I think perhaps it all starts from this: that I I encourage software developers to stop thinking in terms of code and skills, and to start thinking of themselves in terms of trade. And I draw a lot of comparisons um, between software developers and both lawyers and doctors, which might sound strange at first, but those are professions. And more interestingly, those are professions that predated the Industrial Revolution and the Taylor um, model of how to organize companies. Software developers were born into that model, but these other professions have interacted with it um, as a service provider. And so a lot of it is how do we as software developers kind of move towards that? And I think one of the big things is to stop thinking about your skills as being a Java developer or whatever, and start to think of yourself as an automation professional that trades in efficiency. And so, yes, sometimes that involves writing software, but sometimes it involves going into a company and looking at what they're doing and realizing that they could purchase some existing tool to make this easier or just, you know, change how they're doing things. But ultimately what we're going to be doing in the future is trading in automation and efficiency. We, if you think of lawyers, they would pitch themselves by saying, "We defend your rights." And doctors say, "We take care of your health." Uh, the software professional, automation professional, would say, "We save you time."
0: That's really interesting. Um, on the subject of automation, uh, what are your thoughts about? It's a big topic that lots of people are talking about right now. And I was wondering what your thoughts are about that and the future, the future of labor.
1: So it, I think of it in terms of the future of the software developers' labor. That's mainly what um, what Part Five frames out. Like what I, one of the main predictions that I have and that I frankly like is I think that you're going to see software developers start to move out of large firms in general and specifically large firms like banks and stuff that don't um, you know software isn't their product and at a firm like that all your developers are typically going to be cost centers. And so I, I see an exodus from firms like that, and I see software developers or automation professionals starting to form their own firms. Um, in terms of what all that's going to mean for the world at large, is I think that you're going to see over the next 20 years, more or less the elimination of everything that's not a knowledge worker position, that you won't really have humans performing labor anymore. Um so if, if if I get out my crystal ball and look into the future, I think more and more people will in some way or another be involved in, if not automation directly, positions that require like human thought and judgment.
0: And assuming not everybody going to want to be a knowledge worker in the future, um, what do you think people like that are going to do and how should we, you know, as societies adapt to that to that future hmm. or prepare for it?
1: So – it's not something I really addressed in the book, and it's something that's a convenient topic for me to sort of ignore because I, you know, I, early in my career as a software developer, I can remember going around and installing software that I was responsible for, I was the lead on. And knowing that some of the folks um, at these factories and places we were going to, I always hoped that they would find other sort of less data entry jobs in the company, but... You had to know some of those positions were getting eliminated. So it's at times hard to think about that. Like if you've got people that want to do manual labor or certain types of jobs to see those going away. So it's easy for me not to think about it if confronted with it. Um, I do wonder if we'll approach a point where we have to stop thinking of um, nine to five type work as essential that, um, you know, Without getting into the politics of such a thing, you see countries talk about sort of like a guaranteed basic income. Um, Do we hit a point where it doesn't make sense because so much of the world is automated for work to be the default condition? That's a long ways into the future, I think. But, um, you know, that might be the default state where we've essentially automated the basic subsistence means of humanity. And what we do from there is more speculative or less essential.
0: Yeah, one of the things I really liked about your book was the way you um uh deliberately approached as we spoke about at the beginning of this podcast that things that people take for granted as natural uh conditions and demonstrate as all, you know, good histories do, that they're inventions and when one starts up thinking about things that way, it makes it easier to contemplate change, um however difficult it might be to uh see how this is all going to end well <laughs> um uh speaking of endings um i think we might be close to the end of the podcast but i wanted to ask you a couple of questions about um being a self-published author um sure and, um, my first question is why did you choose lean as the platform for this book
1: well um i had not I have a couple of books that um, that a friend of mine with a small business who converts a um, series of blog posts into books that he had done for me. So I had never really set out to write a full-length book, but a lot of my readership wanted that. And I had ideas. Um, there were a lot of people that wanted to see that. And so I thought it would be a nice natural way to interact with them and get feedback as I went. And it also, I think if I'm examining my own subconscious, it brought me kind of to this bridge point between what I was comfortable with, which was writing blog posts and writing a book wherein, you know, I would make some amount of progress and then publish it and people would get to see it rather than a kind of big bang all at once type of deal.
0: And how have you been managing that interaction with your readers?
1: at first I started out doing some pretty frequent publications. Um, and at first I got feedback doing that. Um, but the feedback kind of trickled off and I worried that they were getting fatigued. So I started to, you know, maybe once a month or something, publish a new version. Um, and then in the last two parts of the book, I think, um, Part four, I did one publish when I was halfway done and then published the finished part. And then with part five, I'm just going to publish the whole thing here actually in a week. Um, so I tapered off some. Um, I, I think maybe I get, I get the sense that people are at this point sort of waiting for the book to be finished. Um, early on, more people were giving feedback, and, and I took that and uh, genuinely incorporated it.
0: And were you soliciting feedback via email?
1: I was relying on the lean pub, um, email distribution feature. So in essence, I would put a message in whenever I was going to publish a new version of the book and, you know, ask people to give it a read and say, you know, this is where I left off. Here's what's new. What do you think? Um, that was the primary feedback mechanism. And then sometimes I would, you know, make mentions on social media or, um, on my blog of what I was doing.
0: Okay. Okay. And my last question is, um, if there was a feature we could build for you, um, that you can think of, um, what, what might that be that would have made your experience better or would make your, your future using lean pub better?
1: Um, well, this might even exist. I'm just thinking in terms of, I don't know if it would be a feature exactly, but how to know kind of where to go next, like, um, publishing the book on Amazon or, you know, do I make physical copies or what do I do? So I'm um, at the end, um, of actually writing the draft, but I don't have a lot of great sense of um, marketing outside the uh, platform of Leanpub. Um, in terms of actual, you know, day to day usage features. Um, I, I don't know. I was, I'm pretty comfortable with the markdown syntax. Um, so writing, it has been great. Um, I really love how easy it is to kind of, you know, hit publish or preview and, and see, uh, what it looks like. Uh, that's been wonderful. Uh, my wife doing the editing cause she's a professional editor. She might like a WYSIWYG kind of thing, um, to make the editing easier.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks very much for that. Um, I've, I've long been writing a blog post, um, that is called something like how to write and publish a book on Leanpub," Um, and, uh, <laughs> having a section of next steps once a book is complete is a really good idea. And it's something I'll think about, about adding to that. Um, well, I wanted to say uh thanks very much, Eric. This was a really fun interview. Um and thanks for being on the Lean Pub Podcast and for being a Lean Pub author.
1: Oh, happy to do it and I really appreciate you having me. It's been fun.
0: Thanks.